Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. Today I spoke to Professor Tom Oliver. Tom Oliver is a professor in ecology at the University of Reading. I thought for a minute it was the University of Reading, which would be a bloody good university because re- you've got to master that. That's one of your basics. In fact, if you can't read, get out of our university. A social ecological systems expert and senior fellow within the UK government's informing environmental policy, eh? I didn't know that. Why don't I read these things before I talk to people? Then I would know. He's published more than 65 scientific papers. And before you criticise him, how many scientific papers have you published, Jen? No, I just did a master's. <laughs> did you publish any papers, Jen? No. None. I was on the way to doing it, but then 65 you nil. It. It's a landslide. What a rout. He's done 65 papers. You've not even done one. What was your master's even in? I was going to do a PhD and then gonna you do, started gonna going do. on tour and gonna you ruined do, it. Gonna do. We were all going to do things, Jen, but did we do them? So instead of criticising Trump, what? why don't you... <laughs> When's your golden tower before you criticise him? 65, 65 papers. He won the Marsh Award for Entomology in 2014. Plus, he's wrote The Self-Delusion, which explores how people, animals, plants on the planet we live in are all intimately connected. I've had the conversation with him already. He's a brilliant teacher, a great communicator. Demaya, you really loved him, didn't you? Amazing, says Demaya. Jen, did you learn from it? Yeah. <laughs> there you go what, what what more can we do to promote him now let's promote me if you've not signed up to my email yet sign up to it on russellbrand.com you'll get an emailed letter and i'll tell you now you better open it because some people have not been opening the email letters isn't that right get them opened i'm gonna i'll send you an email within it a unique opportunity is to, to uh, see me do a zoom call which i do when the mood suits me otherwise i might just <laughs> swan off we've got to redo the zoom call for australia we didn't do it right. We've got to do it. Someone DM'd me. what they say? Is Russell coming back? <laughs> oh, I will come back. I am going to do the Zoom call again and the money will go to a place in Mullumbimby. It's a community centre. Every time we... Do you know what? I was thinking of some ideas. Here are those ideas. One, should we make it a subscription model where you pay a one-off $10 fee or whatever and then you can come to as many of those Zoom calls as you want? We've got a pot to donate to different people as we choose. Two, can't remember, there was another one. But anyway, we'll talk about that in our production meeting. So, uh, yeah, sign up to this uh, email list of mine. You'll get wonderful opportunities. You'll be grateful. You could come to the live shows I'm doing at the London Palladium or at uh, Reading or Oxford. There's a few tickets left for Oxford, a few for Reading. Uh, Palladium's a bigger venue. Get these tickets before there's a lockdown. If the lockdown comes during the time that the uh, shows are on sale, we'll uh, obviously we'll refund you. Um, the thing is that uh, these gigs are socially distanced. I will stay up on that show. I will not come and talk to you because remember I've done that before at those live gigs and was it? It was in the papers, wasn't it, Jen? Yeah. What did it say? Don't do that. It said. Don't do that. Yeah. Hey, we're meant to be doing promo for these things for Facebook and all that. And we're using sort of uh, something from the articles. We've got to do that as well. <laughs> is this a I'm production pro- meeting? <laughs> is this a production meeting or an intro? You tell me. You tell me. Okay, so I've promoted the ass off of that. Um, now let's uh, look at some of these comments. Oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, no. Shed up. Point eight three one says the breath work was quite refreshing. <laughs> Shed up. 
That's to damn with faint praise. If I know what I'm talking about, it sort of felt like the waves of my inner sensation started rippling inside. I was more aware of all things in my peripheral vision. I'm excited to learn more from Biet and her breathing technique. Thank you, at Russell, for bringing on Biet. And thank you, Guided by Biet, this, for this interesting breathing technique. Morgan Lindsay goes, Guided by Biet is a gem. Ginkor 13. Amazing. I'm going to do this daily. It was amazing how much stress was relieved just by breathing. There you go. What more do you want on a podcast? Breath techniques, meditation techniques, methods and ideas for how to change the world. What a bargain. So uh, sign up for the for that thing that I was just on about. And now enjoy this wonderful podcast with Tom Oliver, professor, author, teacher. Every single word this man says is impactful, important and educational. Get into it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Professor Tom Oliver, thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. Thank you. Nice to be here. You're a professor in ecology, but the the aspect of your work that interests me uh, the most, uh, as expressed through your book, uh, The Self-Delusion, is the way that you've used uh, ideas that I've only really heard in a sort of scriptural or spiritual context, uh, but you uh, underwrite them scientifically, i.e. reality is a construct and we're all interconnected. Can you give us a, a, a basic understanding of this complex idea? Yeah, sure. I mean... You're right. My my background um, is in ecology, and I guess I, I've always had an interest in in um, you know sort of Eastern religion and Buddhism and, and things like that f- from a young age. And in my professional career, I guess the um, you know I started to realise that ecological problems, you know whether it's food, you know um, that loss of biodiversity, climate change, ocean acidification, you know a lot of these ecological problems actually the solutions lie in in uh, disciplines outside of ecology, you know, in, um, you know, economics, uh, psychology, and actually even underneath those, you know, how we structure our economic institutions, for example, that all depends on our mindsets. It depends, you know, on, on our worldviews, past and present. So it really got me interested in, you know, addressing the root cause of these problems. You know, they seem like big global problems, but actually some of the solutions lie, lie within us, within our mindsets. And actually, when people start to realize that the self, this, this idea that we have of the self as a discrete, uh, autonomous you know, entity is actually an illusion. Um, and actually, you know, religions and, and, and uh, sort of philosophies have been saying this for, for many years. And in a sense, there's nothing new there. And I guess hopefully what I'm trying to bring to the table is, is some of the evidence, the new evidence from science, whether it's uh, you know, neuroscience, psychology, environmental science, actually saying, you know, this is... Um, there is evidence to support this that that there is no such thing as an uh, an isolated individual we're all deeply interconnected part of one you know massively connected uh, reality and actually that when we realize that you know uh, some of the solutions to these big problems environmental degradation but also problems like mental health issues can start to be resolved so i guess it's a, a kind of evidence-based spirituality in a way a kind of hybrid mm-hmm. between science and, and spirituality perhaps 
I feel low, like I am an individual. I mean, you know, I remember my childhood. I feel my feelings. If you stab a pin in my arm, it hurts me and not you. So what do you mean by the self is an illusion and that we are integrated to various ecological systems and that the self is a delusion? So it's, it's, it's certainly intuitive to think, you know, that, that we're uh, individuals. We have this autonomy, you know, we, we, we're isolated in that sense um you know our, we've actually evolved to, to feel that way because we we need a sense of self you know we we'd be bumbling around we wouldn't be able to find food we wouldn't be able to track our social interactions so we evolved this this kind of program which which makes us believe we have an autonomous um you know distinct uh, sense of self but actually, and that was useful, you know, we need it. We're not, I'm not saying we don't, we'll get rid of that, you know, let's all sort of take LSD and, and you know, be mindless. And, and you know, but what we're, I guess what I'm saying is if you imagine a continuum between, you know, selfish individuality and, and kind of a more collectivist cooperative society, I think we've shifted too far along that continuum. And I'm, I'm talking about trying to sort of bring to the, some evidence to the table to redress that balance. So there's this... Um, We've evolved sense of self uh, and that's become maladaptive in the modern world, because especially in this globalized world, you know, we're not living in small hunter gatherer groups of, or tribes of, you know, 50 to 100 people where, you know, if I was selfish and I stole food or, you know, stole someone's mate, then uh, you know, everyone's watching each other and uh, I would be punished, you know, I'd be physically beaten or excluded from the group. But if you zoom forwards to today, you know, we operate in these big societies, 7.8 billion people. I can buy something at the click of a button on my computer here and it can impact, a, you know, an orangutan in a rainforest on the other side of the world. And our, our moral and our, our kind of legal systems haven't kept pace with that rate of, of economic globalization. So um, that, that's the danger that the, the evolved self is, is becoming maladaptive. It's an evolution. It's an evolutionary you know, trait, but it's become maladaptive in the modern world, just like our tendency to, um, you know, to, to, to seek out fatty foods. You know, it was a high, they're high energy food sources. It would have been really valuable to be able to get those. But when you're in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment where they're hyperabundant and you've got advertising shoving these, these pies in your face, you know, it's, it's very, uh, it becomes maladaptive. And that, that aspect of culture too, where it interacts with that, biological evolution so you know whether it's our education systems they're telling us to build self-esteem you know build a stronger self you know our government you know margaret thatcher famously said uh, there's no such thing as society only individuals and their families um, and uh, whether it's our advertising saying you know you're worth it and all these different factors you know different sources our culture you know our minds uh, you know immersed in it they soak it up like a sponge and that exacerbates this this evolved uh, trait of, of having a sense of self and it pushes it too far along that that individualistic end of the spectrum so i think we need to to address that yeah i was thinking just today that perhaps even the uh utility and dominance of the english language might perhaps be because embedded in our grammar are possessive forms and ideas that fit in with this primarily economic ideology that uh, fetishizes individualism materialism and separation i.e i am angry rather the other rather than in other languages it might say something more akin to 
anger is passing through me. And like I know in Hindi, someone explained to me in Hindi that um, in Hindi they say, we say, I speak English. I've got some English and I'm going to speak it. In Hindi they say, Hindi comes to me. An attitude that suggests the kind of collective uh, interconnectivity that you are describing. So many of our ideologies and systems that we favour, even communicative ones, are sort of reinforcing an idea that is, I would argue, economic motivated do you think that or am i putting the chicken before the egg there professor no i think i I think you're right yeah i mean i think there's definitely and um there's evidence to show that that there's differences between cultures in those languages and the use of of nouns more than verbs and definitely western languages use a lot more nouns and have this idea of of objects as opposed to focusing on relationships Um, and actually the use of individualistic words um, so I, me, you know, mine, me, personal, things like that. Those words has increased over the last, over, over decades, recent decades. And there, you know, there's more reference to those in books and songs. So, you know, this, this, this kind of reflects a, a trend in other studies showing increases in individualistic values and, and practices over, over recent decades. So this culture is, is you know, exacerbating it and, and, and this sense of, of atomized individualism is, is definitely worse in these in certain Western countries. I mean, just what you said about um, the ec- sort of economic focus as well, I think is quite interesting. In, in ecology and environmental science, there's a there's a new paradigm for how we should save the world, and it's a little bit scary um, because the old paradigm was that we should uh, explain, you know, kind of. Uh, share with people the, the the wonder and the beauty of the world you know save the whale save the panda you know mm-hmm. here's this you know this this beautiful tiger and you know let's let's give some money to save it the new conservationists would say well it didn't work you know we we're not meeting our targets species are still declining around the world so their idea is we should uh you know monetize the value of these things so we should you know we call it uh natural capital uh and so you know this is the paradigm of natural capitalism i guess and your idea is that you know you say well okay you don't just value that bee um because it's beautiful even though they are beautiful buzzing around us you know and um but actually you say well it, it it provides this much money of pollination and and uh you know of our crops and you give the hard figures and then you can you know push back against you know, the big farming lobbies, uh, you know, and, um, you know, protecting rainforests. You don't just say it's full of beautiful creatures. You say, well, this rainforest provides water purification and then it's, and it's, it's drawing down carbon from the atmosphere. So you can quantify all these things. <clears throat> now, I think there's a good role. There's a good role for that. But actually, um, the danger is that you, you monetize things and you make them about their, their, their value is then about the, the monetary value as opposed to any kind of deeper sort of spiritual connection that they are actually part of us and um i guess what's worrying is there's studies to show that when you monetize things you actually undermine those more social values so there's a famous study about uh, kids in childcare in america where uh, the parents were picking them up late so they said okay well let's find the parents um thinking that that would make them come a bit earlier but actually because the parents were now paying money and could be a little bit late they actually got later so because they just thought well i you know i could afford it so i'll pay it and then the even worse thing is they then changed the rule again and and took away the fine because they realized it didn't work and it didn't go back to being the way it was they were still later so what they it undermined that that social norm doing it doing it for the right reason as opposed to just doing it for money if you apply that to the environment you can pay farmers, for example, landowners to protect, to protect fields. You can say, you know, we need some bees, so they're worth this much. Here's some money to, to plant some habitat for, for bees. 
Um, and that's what's what's this natural capital paradigm is all about to pay farmers or landowners to, to kind of protect that natural capital. The danger is it, it, it undermines those reasons that they might do it anyway. If, because, for example, if you could um, discuss with farmers how we're all you know, connected to nature and actually it's all actually part of us and protecting nature is an act of self-care, then that builds that, that kind of social value of protecting nature. Uh, some recent studies show that when they, they have analysed it, it, it does turn out that, that pay, paying uh, landowners to protect nature does undermine those social values. Um, so that's, that's pretty worrying. It's called crowding out of social norms. It's where money pushes out those, those values. Yes, it sounds to me like sort of like the last reef of kind of decency and sort of kind of pantheonistic connection being washed away by the newly immortalized dollar sign. Some people that I know working that work in agriculture, and I'm sort of not talking at the Monsanto end of the game, at the more sort of literal grassroots level, seem to have an intuitive understanding of nature's value and integrity and perhaps only develop an abusive relationship with nature as a result of the strong economic imperatives that are placed upon them, the kind of requirement to cut corners or, or, or whatever else it is. And it seems like it's evolved or otherwise, it feels like it's, it's somewhere embedded in our nature, this uh, understanding of integration. And in the earlier tribal societies that you described earlier in our conversation, mate, it was like totemistic societies recognize that our survival is contingent upon this a degree of reverence towards e.g the buffalo or the white heart or the or like whatever is the nominal uh talisman of a tribe even in uh, agri like early agricultural societies that there is a reverence that the hangover of which still could be things like harvest festival or whatever you know like it's uh, when we everything becomes qual uh, like qualified by a monetary value then it's in a sense yeah it creates this nihilistic wasteland in which anything goes there is there is you know as bill hicks used to say quit putting a dollar sign on everything on this planet like once everything's got a dollar sign on it then you well then we know what it's worth is there, there's no suggestion that it's, it's you are it there is no disconnect no uh, yeah absolutely and i think i mean it's like einstein said i suppose he said that not everything that counts um not everything that can be kept not everything what did he say <laughs> he <was laughs> oh it's difficult to track isn't it some of those ideas time's not real space is bent i don't know where to go <laughs> yeah i'm not even trying to articulate the theory of relativity <laughs> so not not everything that counts can be counted uh, and i think that's oh that's good isn't it that's poetic yeah he was actually stay in your lane einstein stay in your lane yeah, beyond a, beyond a great, you know, physicist, he, was, he actually had a strong sense of spirituality, I think, and, and mm. sort of pantheism, didn't he, I guess. Um, but, you know, that, that idea that, you know, not everything that is important can be, can be counted and quantified and have a dollar sign on it. And when you try to do that, you miss a lot of the important, you know, values in the world. Um, I think, you know, as you were saying before about these, these older cultures that were more connected to the natural world, um, I definitely agree. And I think we're in a, an interesting time. We're at a crossroads because in the sense you've got one culture, which is kind of motoring down this lane of, of individualism and consumerism and, and damaging the environment and, and degradation of mental health, all just byproducts along the, along the road. But then you've got this other culture, which is much more a kind of growing awareness of, um, 
yeah, of our connectedness, of our, of our oneness. And, you know, you see school kids saying, and I'm not going to go to school because I'm going to strike about the climate. You know, they're taking a hit themselves because they feel they want to protect something bigger. You know, they, they have a sense of global citizenship. And I think that sense of, of global identity, um, you know, the, the science to support that, when, when you can actually quantify people's attitudes, they're using different scales, like a, a nature connectedness scale or a social connectedness scale. Basically, you know, if I look out at the, the forest out there and I kind of feel more connected to it, you know, then I have a higher nature, nature connectedness score, essentially. Uh, and you can, you can ask people questions to, to assess that. But it, it turns out that when people have a higher, you know, um, nature connectedness, they, they, they tend to protect the environment more. They tend to be happier as well, which is a good byproduct. But they also, you know, they're, they're more likely to recycle, they're more likely to, um, to reduce their carbon footprint. So actually you see then the kind of leverage points there that if, if we can, um, you know, if people can, we can change our mindsets, we actually have the solutions to those big global problems because, you know, how we feel connected to nature affects how we act in the world and also affects how other people react. There's a kind of contagion of that behavior. How do you assess people's natural connectedness, which is a lead question to, will you assess mine? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, as part of the, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different indices and actually they all say broadly the same, same thing in terms of, um, they're all kind of correlated but in in the front of my book actually there's a there's a qr code and and it links to a survey so you can you can go and and score yourself is this self-delusion or have you got another book no no no, there's only one book this is the self-delusion yeah and the idea is um i wanted to assess uh well i wanted to enable people to see these indices and it explains a little bit about the science that when you know as i said when people score high on these, they, they tend to be more pro-environment in their behavior. The social connectedness one is similar. It's kind of how, how, how you feel yourself overlaps with other people. And when that's, you score high on that, you tend to be, not surprisingly, more, you have high levels of empathy. You tend to be happier. You tend to be more pro-social. So you, you, you have more caring behaviors and compassionate behaviors. So there are ways, you know, we can start to see, well, how, you know, what works? Okay, if we try an intervention, you know, like a computer game designed to increase empathy. So these exist. We might think computer games often, you know, about being antisocial, sitting on your own and you're locked in your bedroom. But, you know, people are trying to develop some computer games that in theory increase empathy. But uh, someone says that, do you believe them? I'm not sure I would. But then they say, okay, well, we're going to test people before with the social connectedness scale, and then we're going to test them after they've played. So with my book as well, I, you know, I felt I really wanted to write this book. It felt like it was vocational and it was a learning experience for me. But I also wanted to know, you know, does it, does it change mindsets? Because that's my, what I ultimately would like to do is to, for, to see if presenting people with, with, with the science, I guess, around these different areas, you know, our, our physical bodies, that we're full of microbes bursting out of us and they're affecting our moods and behaviours. Uh, the, the fact that, you know, thoughts transfer and jump between minds. When you explain the science of all this, do people then feel more connected? Uh, and it, so I, I wanted them to take the survey before and after the book. And I've only got some preliminary evidence so far, but it does seem there is some evidence that it, that it can increase that nature connectedness and social connectedness, which that seems quite promising. Obviously, the sample size is, is quite low. Um, so, yeah, that's... Can you explain a bit more about that, please? Thoughts jumping between heads and microbes altering our moods? Yeah, so, so the... I mean... Uh, as we talked about before, we, we intuitively feel that we're, we're kind of these independent, you know, atomized entities. But when you look at, say, the physical science, um, we, 
I mean, firstly, our bodies are made of molecules, which are actually parts of, you know, they were part of other plants and animals. And, you know, inside our body, there are 40 kilograms of oxygen. Uh, and that oxygen was, uh, before it was in our bodies, was spread around the atmosphere in the, earth, in the oceans. It was inside dinosaurs and plants and trees. Um, just, just to kind of give you a thought experiment about, uh, you know, how that, those molecules would have been spread out. If you imagine those 40 kilograms of oxygen right now, they're quite, you know, densely held together with, with the, the, they're in water. So there's strong kind of intermolecular bonds holding our bodies. That's why we don't all float around, even though we're full of oxygen. But if we, when we die and we're in a weather cremated or, um, you know, those oxygen molecules will, will burst out, they'll spread amongst the, the atmosphere. Uh, you can imagine them spreading around the entire Earth, you know, a line 100 kilometers high in the atmosphere. And those molecules spread around the entire Earth. If they were equally spread, how far apart do you reckon the average oxygen molecule would be? It was once in your body. I don't know, like sort of if they have to go around the whole world, like, I don't know, uh, 20 mile, 50 mile. Smaller, it's a bit smaller than that. So it turns out there would be 0.3 millimeters apart. So in a mil in a meter cubed and it, if they went around the whole world in the whole world you'd take a meter cubed from from uh, you know uh, a kilometer above russia uh, of, of moscow you know and you take a meter cubed there'd be 29 million molecules of oxygen that were once in your body so that's a dense fog of of molecules and that's mingling with a dense fog of molecules that were once part of other you know every every dinosaur that's ever lived every plant every you know shark hedgehog walrus it's all mixed in there so when you take a breath you know you're breathing in all those that zoological legacy oh right zoological legacy that's a nice bit of language yeah i guess you're also breathing in bacteria because on our body actually most of our body is um in terms of number of cells is, is bacteria we have about 38 trillion bacterial cells in our body to 37 trillion human cells so they slightly outnumber us um but they're also inside inside our human cells, you know, we have these mitochondria, they're the powerhouses of the cells. They, they produce the energy that we, that we move around. They were just originally single celled bacteria that got engulfed by, by a bigger cell that became multicellular organisms that evolved into humans. So even inside each one of our cells, like little Russian dolls are, are kind of microorganisms, bacteria. So we're a kind of chimera of, of the human and the non-human. And, you know, we, we, those bacteria in our guts, there's a lot of stuff, you know, you read about how they can affect our moods and our emotions. Again, detracting from our supposed, you know, autonomy, um, because, you know, the way we act can be affected by how our gut bacteria are kind of treating us today. But in addition to that, they're on our skin. Um, in our mouths, there's about a thousand different bacterial species. Um, behind our, our ears, there's about 150 different species. So they're all over us. And when you brush your skin like that, they, they fly off into the air, you know. So actually around you, we, we shed about a million microscopic particles every hour. Uh, and you can sample that and it, and it contains a distinct like signature of you. So if you use like, sophisticated processing of what DNA is in there and it's your own kind of signature, like a cloud surrounding you, uh, like an aura, I suppose. But when you breathe in so next to someone, you're breathing in their cloud, you know, so we're, we're constantly, you know, transferring molecules between us. And actually a lot of the, the cells in our body, you know, they're only with us for a few weeks, then new cells form. So we're like continually turning over. So then, okay, right, so our bodies, our physical bodies are not, they don't define us. But what about DNA? 
that's the instructions that build the body. Maybe that's us, but actually that's, you know, borrowed from our ancestors. We'll pass it on to our ancestors to come. I mean, even viruses sometimes carry uh, DNA between humans. So, you know, the, 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 the tree of life is actually like a dense tangled, you know, network because of these, these viruses pulling the different um, limbs together. So physically, you know, uh, the science sort of says, you know, we're not, we're not individuals, but then, okay, well, psychologically, maybe we are. And I guess that's where the, the, the psychology comes into it, um, which I can expand on, but. No, go on. No, I was going to say about the thoughts, actually. My next question was, you've explained now, like how the microbial effect of consciousness and mood and stuff. And I was going to say about the thoughts bit. Yeah, I guess, because then, okay, so, yeah, maybe it's our minds that, that kind of defines me, you know, that, surely that's me. But actually, you know, every every touch from someone, every word, every pheromone, you know, the, the smells, the, the molecules that we get from people influences our brains. You know, we have um, billions of neurons in our, in our heads and they, they're changing every, every second and they're influenced by every word that we hear, everything we smell. So we're not even the same person that we were when we woke up this morning. You know, we're always changing. So even as I talk to you now, we're kind of changing each other's brains and interacting with each other like that. Our minds are, are porous. And, um, you know, we have these, these ideas, these cultural ideas that, you know, for example, like inventors, you know, they're great. They're lone, lone geniuses out there kind of beavering away in their labs. But actually, a lot of these inventions are almost kind of ready to be birthed. They're, they're kind of a product of a you know, well, standing on the shoulder of giants, I guess, is a, is a cliche, but it's actually true. You know, lots of inventions like the um, thermometer, incandescent light bulb, steamboat, hypodermic ne needle, they're all invented by multiple people at the same time. Sometimes patents filed on exactly the same day in different places. So, you know, these inventors weren't necessarily, um, you know, obviously they're, they're bright uh, women and, and men, but actually... Uh, they're often taking the almost inevitable next step in a series of kind of interdependent innovations. And this creativity, it's part of a great linked, you know, uh, sort of human endeavor, I guess. Yeah. Where does it come from? You ask, perhaps our sort of intuitive reaction to genius, whether it's in sport or art or science, there's this sense of awe of what is, how did someone do that? How do you do that? Is a sense that it's beyond the individual. I heard some time ago that we should regard ourselves more as an event than an object do you think it's possible plausible likely that we that we narrativize our reality due to the sort of nature of our perspective like we operate on a limited bandwidth of consciousness and that perhaps there are comparable distinct higher or at least different levels of consciousness perhaps at the level of this sort of microbial reality that you describe floating in dense cubic clouds above russia that could be attuned to could be subjectively experienced is it, do you like to get into that kind of gear yeah, i mean i i think that there's definitely things a lot we don't know about the world for sure and i think um like you, you said, in terms of um, we can, did you say, I think you said about kind of nouns, I guess, whether you know, objects are true or whether things are events or actually dynamic processes. And I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, if you really look at it carefully, there is no such thing as an object, like a noun 
you know, it's actually a shorthand. Um, and it's a useful shorthand because, you know, I mean, imagine trying to sort of, uh, I think I'm a book, I give an example. If you were like a, uh, you know, you you own a field or something, and you've got an assistant, and you ask them to go and cut the cut the meadow. You know, you say meadow because it's a kind of useful uh, shorthand. But uh, if we were trying to articulate that in its full uh, complexity, you'd be saying, "Well, can you go and mow that area, which is in a process of change, and the soil microbes are becoming dynamic, and there's gas fluxes, and there's pollinators which are made up of DNA, which is connected to the rest of the world." You know, I can't become- do this job anymore. I just wanted to work on a farm. <laughs> yeah. You're complicating everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, you lose your assistant. So we we kind of need that uh, that shorthand. <clears throat> but actually, those shorthands can become a bit dangerous if we believe them. They become our reality. This the sort of the 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 signifier becomes the signified. I um I I have have the great privilege of living near the River Thames. I was on the river some time ago. There's a weeping willow tree. Me and my wife went under it on a paddleboard and hung out. We didn't do nothing erotic. We were just hanging out. But like there, as a like when a boat would go by, the ripples come along and they move the little paddleboard that we were on. I was holding onto a branch to keep us there underneath it. And I said that do you, I imagine that if you had uh, sensory instruments sensitive enough, that the waves that we can experience when we are in water would be. Uh, as, uh, uh, measurable when someone comes into a room and you are affected by it and based on what you're saying about pheromones and microbial information that this is true that like it's like oh I don't feel cool when that person comes in like it's not entirely a construct as materialists uh, in the uh, the current zenith of understanding would have us believe but that there is the possibility that we are like Mm-mm, that ain't good something negative just happened and where do you say you feel these things? In your gut, in your heart, where there are indeed, as I understand, neurological cells and processes that could be called intuition taking place. Definitely, yeah. There's there's a lot of processes that go on be, behind our consciousness that you know that, that we're not aware of. And, and I mean, there's experiments, for example, where you know dentists making mistakes. Uh, if you get, if you wear, don't do this, by the way, if you wear a T-shirt to the dentist that you've been, you know, you've had some fearsome event happen to you, you know, you jumped out of an aeroplane and then you're, you're, you, the kind of fear pheromones are on the T-shirt and then you go to the dentist, the dentist is more likely to make a mistake um, because that, that, those pheromones kind of essentially affect them and it's an alarm pheromone. So, um, yeah, it's just a life lesson about going... How was this study conducted in a double-blind format? Right, we're going to need a couple of hundred dentists, we're going to need some skydivers and some very smelly T-shirts. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's actually a couple of there's a couple of weird experiments like that. One was they got they got the the skydivers and then they get the sweat from the the t-shirts. They did do it. <laughs> they got <laughs> sweat me. from from people who who had been exercising but not in a kind of fearful situation. And then they aerosolize it and then they squirt it out of people's noses and then, then you know it smells mildly sweaty. Both both treatments smell the same, but one of kind of got the fear factor in and it does affect people's it affects the way they behave. You know, so these kind of hidden things are happening all the time. And, you know, clever scientific experiments can start to reveal them. But, you know, that's like a needle in a haystack. There could be many more, you know, factors happening that we're not, you know, we don't know about yet in the way we're 
we're responding sometimes when you um like from a neurological perspective look at personal culpability and it's people say that you think that you made the decision at that point but actually these processes indicate that the decision happened before that or you know like those behavioral experiments where people were asked to express their uh, opinions on a variety of uh, social issues and they became more conservative when there was a repugnant smell in the room of trash or whatever people go no this we shouldn't have immigration it's a bloody liability you know but if you put them in a sweet smelling oh i suppose we're all one like that it sort of suggests that in a way there there yeah there is no i there is no i that's the first layer of the illusion of the material world is the persona this is the first thing that we encounter it happens a little deeper than the table a similarly illusory object but it is nonetheless a construct that requires faith in order to exist i believe i am russell i remember going to school yeah and it's a useful construct but you know we need it and i guess that's that's sometimes i think the um you know the people misinterpret sometimes the way you know we're talking conversations like this because they'll say oh you just want to get rid of the self you're like you know you you kind of want to you know you but actually obviously the self is useful we need as i said we need a self it's just moving back along that continuum towards that sense of of compassion and collectivism i mean you mentioned about blame there because you know if you believe that things are in you know there are individual entities then obviously they can be blameworthy and so someone who commits a heinous murder like climbs up the top of a tower and shoots loads of you know people in a, in a university campus um you know horrific you know that they are a criminal and they should be you know punished should they um it's an interesting question and of course that we need to keep society safe from them but actually, you know, in some of these cases, in fact, that case I mentioned, there was uh, someone called Charles Whitman who, who did that. He, he got some guns. In fact, he stabbed his wife first, got some guns, uh, went up to the campus, up to the tower and shot lots of people. Uh, but when they examined it, it turns out he had a tumour in his brain and that tumour can increase violent tendencies. And he'd, he'd written a letter to his, he'd been to the GP, his doctor before and said, I'm starting to get these weird violent tendencies and i'm a bit worried there's something wrong with me and even in his suicide note before he you know committed this these acts of murder he wrote you know i'm not feeling myself and i request that maybe an autopsy could be conducted if i you know when i die and have a look at my brain and they did and it turns out there was a, a big tumor in there and you know so okay how how blameworthy is he now that there was some cancerous growth in his head which pressed on the region of his brain which inhibits violence um and so, you know, when you start to look at these causes, every every event has multiple causes going back from it. And you say, well, okay, you know, can things, people be blameworthy? Obviously, we need to, you know, we need to have maybe, we need to protect society when they're violent, whatever. But it, it enables a more compassionate treatment of them. We, you know, rather than kicking them and treating them like dogs, we, you know, we might treat them much more like people who are ill, I guess. Um, and, you know, we, like a we say a child is naughty or something it's a, it's a shorthand and actually if we try and get behind you know what is causing that behavior what environment is causing that naughty behavior then we start to unpick those connections and that's a much more constructive way of, of... it's interesting because i'm a parent of two young children and i um it's, it's difficult not to of course inflect my own value systems and judgments on their behavior even though they're experiencing an entirely different reality most obviously from a neurological perspective and they're not they don't know the sort of patterns that are evoked 
by their rage or by what I would consider uh, it's sort of malcontent. You know, like they, they, I recognize that like sometimes me and my wife talk about it and I go, yeah, but even though that behavior to us is disruptive or unpleasant, what's essentially happening is she's communicating that she is not feeling good. Like, it's, but if, if, the, if the way she communicates that fits in with, hey, I don't actually like that. You punched your sister or you did so, you know, you were horrible to the cat or told us to F off. Then you sort of evaluate it on that basis rather than if you sort of, unless you different if they cry or whatever, you know? So I, I recognize that um, we, that the reality is a projection as much as I mean more than it is an objective reality to which you can bring a, a set of utensils and measurements that are consistent. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and I've 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 got young kids as well, and it's a challenge though, isn't it? I guess like in some you know sometimes when you're tired or when you're you're kind of in a rush it's very difficult to forget that kind of sense of of um understanding the, the kind of interconnectedness that are leading to their behaviors or whatever and, and just you know um getting angry at them you know as, as an entity one of my metrics or, or not metrics but personal experiences of this is as an addict i recognize that with addiction there is a point where my autonomy notably dissipates i.e if i spend time i my only way of abstaining from drugs and certain behaviors is not to put myself in an environment where i lose my autonomy there will be a point where i can't decide anymore so i have to i i only have the option to regulate by uh, with a constructs with structures that i put in place i don't hang out with people taking heroin i don't go to crack houses you know and it's really had really altered my daily routine i must say <laughs> but, but, but like uh but you know that like once there's a certain point where i cannot choose anymore i don't feel i have no choice i have to sort of almost operate within these parameters if i stay within these parameters that you know which include things like going to the gym prayer meditation helping other people trying you know or curiously enough spiritual techniques staying present in the moment you know making amends for the past trying to treat people correctly etc it's interesting that i suppose that's why i'm so open to spiritual solutions for both personal and social problems and i'm particularly fascinated by uh, scientific and evidence-based approaches to this because you know there's a, a, a substantial number of people particularly people in powerful institutions regard it as flim flam and claptrap if what is underwrite in your uh, world view is kind of spiritualism of any hue, whether it's sort of traditional Abrahamic stuff or more new age mumbo jumbo, you know, although I'm into both of those things. Yeah, I think uh, it's, I think it's a really interesting point you make there about practice and science. And um, the, one of the dangers, I guess, with a book about science is that it's all about theoretical knowledge it's about abstracts you know and, and i said i think the science is valuable because it points it, it highlights these kind of hidden connections and you know as we talked about whether it's our physical bodies or our, you know neural networks and social networks etc i think there's fascinating things that reveal that that interconnectedness and how we're all part of one kind of tapestry of life as it were we're all kind of threads in that that big tapestry but um and also science can can lend 
uh, as a sort of assessment of different practices. So as you said, you know, whether a computer game can genuinely increase empathy, whether, um, you know, taking kids out into the environment to learn about nature, does it actually work and does it change their behaviours? So it can assess different practices. You know, it can assess meditation, you know, you, even you and kind of these neuro, neurofeedback mechanisms where they kind of, you know, they track your brain as you're meditating and see what's the most effective way to get there, I guess. Um, rather than then kind of feeling your way to get to a, an altered mindset, I guess it, it can, in theory, science could be used or is being used to kind of highlight where, when we're closer to getting to those different states. I suppose it's like a sports science, you know, um, helping athletes get to a, to a peak level of fitness. Science can be used along the way, but there's no, there's no uh, re, uh, kind of replacement for practice. You have to have the practice. I mean, like an archer, an Olympic archer firing an arrow into a target 100 metres away. Um, we, I could look at that and, and uh, you know, or you could explain to me the, the details of it, the, the, the exact theory by which it's done. And if, even if I you know, understood the theory, if I picked up that, that uh, you know, bow and arrow and tried to fire, I wouldn't be able to do it because it's about neural networks in the body that have been have been forged through hard work and discipline and practice. And, you know, whether it's playing the piano, whether it's um, archery, whether it's meditation, it's the kind of practice which lays down those networks. And I guess it's habits. You're laying down good habits and kind of well-worn tracks by which you you could just go in and those things get easier over time, I suppose. Obviously, you've got bad habits as well, as you talked about, like, you know, addictions. And there it's so difficult to, to kind of get away from them. And, you know, it's almost like a big black pit and you're tempted to just get closer and closer and look into it. And then by the time you've looked into it, you're, you're gone because you're, 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 your mind is snapped back into those neural pathways by which you're kind of doing it and it's too late. So the, the, answer, I mean, the solution, I guess, is, as you sort of said, is just to get away, mm -hmm. avoid the circumstances because those habits are so powerful and strong. There's a... Um, in a sort of neural networks, there's a saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more they fire, the more they become well-trodden kind of neural pathways. And then the more we, you know, the easier it is to then, um, for them to then be fired again. Yes, and I suppose yes. with good practices, we, we need to, they're difficult at first because it's kind of, you're kind of create a new path. You're kind of fighting your way through vegetation and sometimes we get lost in the wilderness, but eventually I guess that discipline plays off and we create these well-trodden paths by which we can maybe access those different states or activities, whether it's, you know, firing the arrow, whether it's being in an altered mindset, much easier. Hence conditioning, hence uh, the Pavlovian response, the possibility to forge connections between sort of behavior and external stimuli if indeed there is an electromagnetic charge to neurology then it would you know magnetic sense that there's a kind of a pull towards it but you know like that when thinking of habit if on some level there is a neurological component to i.e my relationship with chemical dependency or so or, or behavioral habits they exist not only as a kind of passive and neutral Neutral uh, passageway, but also as a charged, uh, they would have a degree of appeal. I sense that you are sort of pulled towards them. That there is a kind of uh, that it is vibrant, that it is alive. This I felt when you were 
making that point then how um i wonder so if part of what you're obviously attracted to mate is uh solutions and we're talking about these ideas of whether or not a computer game can increase empathy or whether or not taking inner city kids down to a pasture and giving them a connection with a butterfly and a, a, a thrush can be of some sort of value down the line. I wonder if uh, how we must consider our anthropological origins and the, what the, the conditions we are evolved to thrive in, how uh, if in any solution-based thinking we should consider these sort of native conditions of our species acknowledging that much of our scientific medical and technological process has not been mirrored in behavioral uh, in our behavioral evolution and progress i wonder if it's would you do you consider perhaps then that a kind of decentralization could be an important part of po political uh, progress if 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 we are to uh, interrupt our decline do you think that much of the decline that you are describing is because of the concentration of power in certain um, financial and political institutions which ultimately end up following a certain pattern the pattern the concentration of their power prioritization of economic growth over ecological st stability and you know what kind of goal is stability when you look at the conditions we're currently in it ought to be you know progress or rehabilitation care um so i wonder if there's almost if there's you know it seems like a sort of a, a very um faint palliative indeed these sort of gentle modifiers of like you know trips for kids and computer games that encourage you to be kind when really we all know where power is concentrated and power by definition is what is causing the, the current direction of travel radical change required absolutely i mean it's like you talk about in one of your books a revolution is needed and it's not a revolution with with kind of spears and, and guns it's a kind of revolution in in mindsets i guess and that's what that's what i hope we will start to see. Um, and I think there is evidence that that kind of new kind of emerging consciousness is starting to become a bit more mainstream. I mean, of course, as we talked about, it's been around for a long time. There've been sort of spiritual kind of, you know, lights along the way, I guess, of, of human history. Um, but I hope that we can start to see a kind of mainstreaming of, of this kind of ecological view of of the world and, and kind of ecological consciousness. Um, although, it, you know, some of, some of the, the things seem small, I guess, in terms of um, small steps and incremental steps, but I guess they, the, the beauty of it is because we're all connected and behaviors are kind of contagious, those kind of uh, changes in, in people's mindsets, you know, can really transfer and, and you can kind of get this multiplier effect. And so small changes can actually accumulate to become kind of quite rapid tipping points. And, you know, when we see social change over history, it happens very quickly because you kind of get these tipping points. And, and I guess my hope is that, you know, um, these changes, they'll be in a kind of an acceleration. In, um, and some of the, 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 the smaller acts, you know, might, might kind of multiply up at some point where we see these bigger changes. And I think then we can... I suppose in the language of, of, of revolution is to overthrow this kind of hegemony of, of kind of, um, you know, domineering kind of economic sort of uh, mindsets about kind of monetizing uh, consumerism, you know, 
it's all you know about selfish individualism i guess uh, and, and replace them with much more kind of um decentralized collaborative kind of cooperative uh ways of living and i guess you know there's a role for technology this is not about being luddites you know mm -hmm. technology is important but i think technology without kind of wisdom or intelligence without wisdom is is it's not going to do us very good and it hasn't done us very good you know we've got the climate changing we've got biodiversity loss we've got ocean acidification we've got nitrogen deposition we've got mental health crisis you know we can reel off all these these issues and they're caused by our kind of the structures the way the way we live in terms of um you know ultimately the way we we buy things the way we travel the way we interact with each other to change all those things seems so daunting, but actually, as I said, I guess we talked about right at the start, it's about mindsets. And if you can change people's mindsets, you can really change fundamentally the way they act in the world and the way, the way they relate to each other. And that can, can change very quickly. And I guess on a, just a final sort of optimistic note there is, you know, in a way we're the kind of old school in the sense of a kind of mindset of, of a sort of, you know, cohort, and there are co different cohorts go through time. And young people now, you know, have a very different mindset and potentially will be, think very differently than, than we think in the future. So actually social change can happen very quickly in that way. And you know, when you see, you know, school kids kind of striking for the climate or for, for you know, protecting biodiversity, it's, it's the idea that maybe this ecological consciousness is becoming more dominant, um, you know, is perhaps seems a bit more realistic i guess it's, it seems that you've hit upon something very significant in the um how this is concentrated around our the way we identify i spoke to satish kumar quite recently uh, he did a pilgrimage famously in the 60s him and a friend walked from india around the world they met martin luther king and bertrand russell I talked about how in the political sphere there's a kind of disjunct between uh, sort of social justice advocates and campaigners and the traditional blue collar or working class base for you know the traditional left. He said you can have no social justice without environmental justice. Uh, the result of our conversation we kind of concluded or at least postulated that uh, much of contemporary political activism is concentrated on individual centric kind of ideas that are still a, pro a sort of the fetishization of this i am this and this is who i am and this is what i want and this is how i express myself and in a sense whilst it is um opposes much of the overt rapaciousness of what we would regard as conventional right-wing thinking, the objectification, commodification of the earth and the earth's resources. It still, in a sense, does not address the requirement for there to be an individual at all for that dynamic to exist. And I often think of the American Indian, that's how he described himself, activist Russell Mead, who said that, um, you know, we're, there's some a suggestion that we should all become Marxists because it was more in line with our thinking. But we see Mark capitalism and communism as different sides of the same coin. Both philosophies regard industry as the apotheosis of human endeavor. Both regard the earth as a commodity to be sort of mined and distributed all you're talking about is what you do with that product and i feel that what russell mead was saying is that you have to transcend materialism and to transcend materialism you have to transcend self it has to be the first thing that goes the first layer of the material world is the uh, the persona itself 
once you are beyond that then all things become connected yeah yeah i th I, th I think this idea of an ecological I identity is, is quite powerful and this is um this is a, a i mean the term has been used a lot there was a, a there's a, a strand of ecology called deep ecology um and uh, i guess it, it's trying to sort of take a bit more philosophy you know, philosophy in, in, in ecology. And there's a, a Norwegian chap called Arne Nace, and he came up with the idea of ecological identity, where, uh, you know, how we see ourselves, rather than it just being me or kind of my family or my town, you know, if we see ourselves in the whole world, you know, we see nature as part of us. And this, um, you know, we talked about these nature connection indices, I guess, the ways of measuring, you know, a scale. They actually, that's what that, those are measuring. Um, uh, how how much we see our self schema as integrated with a kind of other you know nature or, or other people as well, and um, Arnie Nace was sort of speculating and saying, well, if if we have an identity which encompasses the kind of whole world, you know, other, all the species and the animals and other people, you know, ha harming something try, or try, not harming something on the other side of the world, it won't be an act of of altruism to do that because an altruism is hard work, you know, you want to do it, you want to kind of, you know, have that product or something, but you know, you know, you shouldn't, and you have to be altruistic. Oh God, that is hard work. He's saying, well, actually, if, if we see our identity in, in those things, it would be an act of self-harm mm -hmm. to damage them. So, so actually protecting the world, protecting other people becomes an act of self-care. I mean, we see this in our own families. Obviously you, we don't think of, um, you know, protecting our family is an act of, of self-care in a way because we see ourselves as part of that unit. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's expanding that sphere of identity uh, beyond the family, beyond the town, beyond the city. I guess dangerously what we see now is, you know, a kind of attraction maybe towards some more xenophobia and nationalism. And um, it's interesting what you said, your discussion with Satish Kumar about, um, you know, you're saying social justice is, is important for environmentalism. Um, no, I think you said actually environmentalism is important for social justice. But I think it works the other way around too, is social justice is important for protecting the world's environment too, because the, the mindsets are kind of linked. When we have a very xenophobic mindset, which is, is essentially this, this uh, selfish, egoic, identity when we're, we're distrustful of, of of others and strangers and we want to keep them out keep the migrants out and we become very nationalistic we protect our own country even if it means people in other countries will suffer um, you know when that retract that sphere of identity is, is shrinks we become more racist and become more xenophobic and we also end up damaging the environment on the other side of the world but in a connected world that's a very st sort of stupid game in a way because it will just come back and bite us because you know all these issues are transboundary you know if we cause climate change which causes mass human migration we're going to see those problems come over to us so even when you're you know i guess when we're talking to highly kind of right-wing people who are sort of very nationalistic and this idea that we need to focus on these big transboundary issues is is still very relevant and um but i think yeah ecological identity to me is is a powerful lever for both social justice and environmental protection i like that idea tom that it's not that we need to rescind egotism rather we need to take it to its natural conclusion all things the self the capital s self the ultimate self all things interconnected so extend this idea of protection and compassion or remove all boundaries of it consider it a kind of a kind of oneness and i remember now something when you were talking about excellence, athleticism and the neurological correlative to that in the case of, say, an Olympic 
Archer, it made me think of the quantum physics idea of a superstate of potentialities that the we the possibility for all things exists until the decision is made. Then, uh, then, then a reality begins to appear. That when it comes to the individual or or beyond the individual, given that our definition of an individual is highly limited only by our the limitations of our senses. And you wrote the book, and like like so that you know that individuals cultures societies can be realized as a result of choice kind of an obvious thing but it's almost as if those realities are already existing waiting for us to fulfill them the sort of the like a river like the riverbed itself just waiting for the water to rush in yeah yeah i think it it is it's it's like that's the true nature of reality and what we're seeing is a kind of an illusion a veil you know and and we're, we're under this illusion um and we need to kind of peel it away and you know we peel it away with with science but also with those practices that we talked about yeah because you know whether it's meditation whether it's kind of community-based activities anything that kind of helps us to to pull away that sense of, of egoism and and that's why the book is not you know called self-annihilation you know the self-annihilation it's not about getting rid of the self it's about it's about seeing that the self as we see it in this isolated individual is a is a delusion mm-hmm. it's an illusion harmful delusion and actually the, the hopefully the message of the of it is quite positive in that it's about self-expansion it's about seeing that that we are actually a bigger uh entity and you know we're, we're part of this big connected network and, and this idea that we're kind of these isolated tiny atoms is to me quite depressing and so when you start to to see that it's um yeah i think it for me it's sort of positive kind of um hopeful feeling yeah sometimes when i watch football i support west ham when i like i become really engrossed in the reality of the football match and like you know because it's west ham current events aside usually it ends in disappointment and then i have to sort of undertake this process where i go oh, don't matter it's not my actual life i don't who gives a shit i could just walk away from that it's only sort of a, one aspect of my reality well a comparable thing could be said of the entire persona to which i have this partiality there's sort of uh, i think it's as a zen master banquo said we're too partial to the self we have this constructed thing and our entire reality is sort of built upon oh the self likes this the self doesn't like that you know and now in my meditation i i take this i sometimes when i'm thinking a lot in, when I, in the time that i've set aside for meditation i feel like oh it's because i've been unable to fall into my wider awareness i'm be- too partial to the sort of the rhythms of my egocentric and individual thought oh what if i do that what if that doesn't happen oh, i want that oh, i didn't like that i shouldn't have said that earlier i should need more of this you know this is the partiality i have to these this set of pathways and experiences this habit of the self and uh yeah do you, i wonder do you meditate mate yeah i i i do i do and i also find quite you know personally i find sort of going out in into nature and kind of nature you know being connected to nature so even if it's just a long walk and that kind of looking at kind of natural landscapes and trees i find that kind of sense of self sort of dissolving in those environments more and i guess it, that environment is important isn't it because it's like the the kind of tendency to to seek fatty food if we're surrounded if we're in a pie shop it's very difficult to not want to eat pies you're obsessed with pies you keep mentioning them um, yeah i'm addicted to pie no, <laughs> i am um, 
but I guess in the modern world, you know, it essentially is, it's like that pie shop in a sense that we're constantly bombarded with these messages of, you know, individualism, you know, reinforcing what is actually already an, an evolved tendency, a partiality, as you put it. Wicked. To, to feel that sense of self. So we, you know, evolution is an amazing thing and it's this sense of self has been is, is a survival tool it's like a pen knife you know you need it in the woods but also we need to kind of realize its limitations and that not everything that's evolved is always adaptive in in a current circumstance wicked yeah yeah to progress is moving in different speeds not all happening on one sort of almost on one continuum hey have you got any techniques for integrating and connecting to nature like sometimes i'm in nature but i'm listening to a podcast or something i'm not probably properly allowing myself to experience it is there things that you do to connect you to it like not listening to a podcast and maybe touching stuff and getting involved yeah i think um yeah yeah i mean not uh, well first to say I'm, I'm like you i guess some some days you it's difficult to kind of get the the record of 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 self you know switch it off because it's just playing in kind of self mode and it's very difficult to to turn off those those thoughts other days it's easier so you know it does it flows it, it it comes and goes i guess i find personally that um yeah not being distracted you know having the phone or you know podcast whatever but but actually the 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 perception element so you know just looking at the kind of leaves are good in trees you know looking at the the canopy moving and trying to just um be in a mode of actually receptive receptiveness so you're just looking at the colors and the shapes and the patterns and start with a small patch and try to in, in absolute detail see the colors the detail that's there i mean the world is in is in every molecule in a way because of that connectedness so you can start with a really small patch and see the details and then kind of gradually your your, your field of view opens out and as it as it does that i, I often feel there's a kind of sense of of openness and expansion and connectedness Professor Tom, I like to consider you perhaps out in the bracken studying a one metre square portion of a moor, looking at every butterfly, every blade of grass before realising, oh God, I ain't had a pie for half an hour and sprinting to the nearest Greg's Bakery, elbowing the shop window open into shards and grabbing a sausage roll. Yeah, we all have our, our, our moments of, of failure. Definitely. <laughs> There's no question about that. Professor Tom, thank you so much for explaining that. I'm going to read your book, Self Delusion. That's right up my alley. A scientific uh, and, uh, to, you know, materialist in the sense that it's using data uh, based study of the nature of self and our ultimate integrity with all systems no discretion between self and other very beautiful mate thanks for explaining that so clearly yeah no I, I hope you enjoy it i've tried to not make it too much sort of you know data there's there's a bit about a kind of monologue of a, of a mite on someone's eyebrow um oh i like the sound of that so yeah it's, it's tried to be a bit creative and playful because i think that that kind of sense of play and and um you know is, is important in, in sort of art and bringing art and science together is, is, is important. I, I, I'd like to see myself as not a, a kind of an ecologist in a strict sense, but, but um, I guess a sort of interdisciplinary space explorer, as it were, to try to bring together those different disciplines. Because I think we've become very siloed in the way science works. And that's, that's very problematic. Um, I agree. We're always rushing around in our specialisms, but actually often we need to just take a step back. You know, we're in an emergency, we're in a climate emergency, we need to, to slow down, as I once heard at a workshop. I quite like that idea of slowing down and deliberating a bit more and, and pulling together the different strands. 
Yeah, where the hell is this rush? Where are we trying to get to? That in itself, economic imposition, the idea of scarcity, the idea of competition, all these ideas mobilized and weaponized to decrease the value of our experience here, to decrease the truth of the unity that underscores all apparent separation. Slowing down, I think, is an important thing that's part of like throwing off the sort of oppressive systems that we have taken on and become so identified with. I think that's a real good idea. And I also like your idea that you embrace the spirit of play in the way that you teach and communicate. And it is important to get beyond these artificial taxonomies that sort of impede progress and communication by, by their nature. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're starting to see that. But, um, but it's a slow progress. And there's a lot of kind of, I suppose, lock in in the way the system works. And it's trying to sort of break down those barriers. Mm. Well, thank you again. And let us know, let me know if there's anything I can uh, do for you. And I hope we get to communicate again. You're a great teacher. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's great to chat. Thank, thanks, Russell. Yeah, cheers. See you. Thanks, Professor. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Professor Tom Oliver. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me on Under the Skin. Sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com. We're going to be back next week. I think it's going to be like Carlo Ravelli or uh, there's loads of good Seth guests. Seth Abrahamson. If you've been following him, he's good stuff. Meanwhile, go listen to some of the old episodes of Under the Skin with Neil deGrasse Tyson, Anil Seth, Deepak Chopra. All good stuff. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.